Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm absolutely delighted to be here with Roosevelt Montas, who is a professor of humanities at Columbia. He recently wrote a book called Rescuing Socrates, which is a memoir about how the great books have changed his life, both as a student and as a teacher. He's also uh, a scholar of uh, antebellum history, but I think of him primarily as somebody who embodies the quest for truth and for understanding and um, who exudes a passion for learning, which is increasingly rare. So welcome, Roosevelt. Thank you so hard. It's a pleasure to be here. You begin your book uh, with the discussion of St. Augustine and his confessions, one of the first great books that you encountered in your life. And you suggest Augustine as somebody who is both particular and universal, particular in his religious struggle, uh, his conversion, and universal in the sense that his quest for self-understanding can resonate with people um, who are not only Christian or not only struggling with Christian faith. Um, and yet you yourself came to him as somebody who found religion for a time and you also said that that gave you an advantage in your ability to relate to him. So I'm curious to know um, how you think about the particularism of, of, of authors as well as universalism of them, and how, um, maybe just to make that more specific in particular, um, specifically with authors that have a religious depth to them, how do you translate that religious struggle um, for people who are not raised with religion? Yeah, thank you. That's a, it's a really great question. I, I would say that there is a, there's a kind of beautiful dance between the particularity and the universality of great books. And somehow it is precisely that dance that constitutes a great books that it, that is it is it, that it is that dance that makes a great book great um, and i don't say great books with uh the idea of some fixed canon or some metal or title that that one assigns in some authoritative way to a book um but that uh capacity that certain works of art have to speak from within their particularity two issues that are of universal human concern. Um, in the case of Augustine, the capacity of Augustine to speak to deep human questions that illuminate the experience of somebody who does not share his theological orientation, who does not uh, accept Christianity, who may even be an atheist. Yet Augustine is probing into a sort of category, a, a type of human experience that is not exclusive to believers and that is um, recognizable to anybody who is grappling with existential questions, anybody who is grappling with our capacity as human beings to approach anything like truth, um, our capacity as human beings to experience time to think about the future, to remember the past, to think about the own, um, uh, the forces in our psyche that seem to shape our experience of the world and our aspirations. These are questions that um, Augustine 
faces and deals in an intellectually rigorous and honest way. And that, that can be um, illuminative for anybody who reads him seriously. It is true that uh, Augustine, like many other religious thinkers, um, can sort of turn off a reader that doesn't uh, embrace that or that is impatient with the specific theological commitments that are evident from the page from page one of of Saint Augustine. Um, but you know, the, there is a there's something undeniably fundamental about the religious life, about religious questions, about the fact that in every culture, in every moment in history, people have tried to grapple with some grounding questions of existence and that religion, and, and by that one can mean a very, very broad range of practices and beliefs, but religion in every culture has emerged as a way to sort of uh, frame, as a way to package, as a way to systematically approach these fundamental questions. Um, and I think if one is interested in those fundamental questions, whether one is religious, thinks of him or herself as religious or not, if one is interested in those fundamental questions, I think with that comes a kind of respect, a kind of curiosity about the ways in which human cultures, particularly religions that, um, that are very ancient, in, which, in the ways in which those systems have approached those grounding questions of existence. Um, and that's something that whenever I teach religious texts, um, and I teach religious texts from very different traditions in, in the Columbia core curriculum, um, whenever we approach them, we try to see what are the grounding questions? What are the fundamental questions? What are the aspects of universal human experience that this um, religious approach is trying to grapple with, is trying to get a handle on. And I think that that is enriching for anybody quite apart from one's own commitment or lack of commitments to in a religious worldview. Have you found any advantage amongst those who come to the core with a religious background or what are the attributes that set certain people apart from others in terms of their ability to form, in your words, the sympathetic bond with these ancient writers? I think it would be hard to generalize because there are so many different varieties of sort of religious orientation. Um, you know, for example, sometimes I, I have students who have um, come from a sort of deep yeshiva-oriented study of the Talmud. Um, and who know the Hebrew Bible and the commentary and the interpretive traditions and sort of the, the original language uh, with a degree of nuance and depth that far, far exceeds anything that I can, that I can approach. Um, and um, clearly that sort of enriches the, the classroom discussion. But sometimes it also distorts the classroom discussion because sometimes um, uh, someone who is very intimate with the text um, it, that has that that the relationship to the text is mediated through traditions, rituals, commitments, beliefs, uh, practices that the text becomes kind of obscured. And this is not just the case with with people who have this kind of Talmudic education. Also, happens with other kind of devout. Um, 
uh, believers, whether the, the sort of the big, we read in the core curriculum, the, the founding text of the three big Abrahamic religions. So we read the Quran um, and we read the New Testament. And sometimes it happens that people's religious experience, religious commitments actually obscure and make a, conver a conversation difficult to have. Um, when we're having a conversation where we, let's say, um, are going to read a letter of Paul, um, not as a divinely inspired articulation of ultimate truth, but as a document that is produced in a moment of the development of the faith, in a moment in history, in a moment of, um, uh, in, in a particular circumstance where the early Christian movement is being shaped. Um, so when you bring those different set of assumptions to the text, you can you end up with a very different reading. And sometimes students who are committed to the first view of that text like that find it very hard to um, suspend that in order to look at the text through a really different lens. On the other hand, so I've, I've, I've been talking about the ways in which a religious background can obscure um, the conversation. On the other hand, um, it is often the case, as it as was the case with me, that my sort of religious struggle, my sort of search quest for a grounding in, well, for clarity about what it was that I, what, that I believed and for clarity about what my, my religious experiences had meant, uh, that set me in the, it gave me the kind of orientation, the kind of passionate interest, living interest in the text that opened opened it up in, in, in ways that would not have happened otherwise. One other thing I would say about this, and I, and, and I make a brief reference about this in the book, um, that St. Augustine I have found to be particularly difficult for contemporary students to, to access. Um, students are often just turned off by his um, sort of overt, kind of over the top devotional tone in the Confessions, which is the sort of book that that is most widely read and probably the most accessible. Um, so, in in that case, uh, if one has either a tolerance or a familiarity with the language, with the register of devotional writing, uh, that will also, as it did for me, lower the barrier of entry into, into a text like St. Augustine's Confessions. Mm. One of the themes in your book, and I resonated deeply with it, was the importance of the teacher as a kind of guide, an authentic presence in the classroom who embodies this search for truth and search for wisdom, and in a sense models this for students so that it isn't just the student's reading books and getting knowledge from them, but in a sense, the students learning how to read, learning how to learn. And that seems like a rare thing in academia. Um, certainly the incentives um, in graduate school and beyond point away from that, where, where at the very least regard it neutrally. So the, the goal is to publish, um, that's how you get the promotion. The goal is not, let's say, to form the sympathetic bond. And there's almost a dilettantishness to the Columbia framework where you can be an expert in your area, but you still not necessarily required or invited to 
form a sympathetic bond with Homer or Dante or Gandhi, regardless of the fact that you're an expert in them. And that that's by design, I think, from the from, from the foundations. But it seems somewhat contrarian. Um, of all of all the ways that the core is contrarian, I actually find that to be the most contrarian, not the oh, this is Western and it's dead white men and all of that kind of stuff. But actually the idea of being an appreciator of books as opposed to a critic of books. And so like to follow up on this religion point, I think in religion, it's it's quite taken for granted that the teacher has some love of the material um, and that the classroom, because it's a devotional space, um, the aspiration is not only to form the sympathetic bond, in some sense that sympathetic bond exists, already it's to deepen it. What makes Columbia and I think any um, university or any space where the core is being approached is the combination of critical reading or critical thinking with um, some affirmation that this really does need to hit deep. It does need to strike an emotional bond. And so how do you balance those two? It is one of the ways what you're pointing to in which the practice of liberal education in the university is countercultural. Sometimes I say that liberal education in the university lives in a hostile environment. Um, the university is the modern research university, which is sort of the, in America at least, it's the template that all of higher education follows. So even a, a liberal arts college, even a community college, is going to be um, competing and uh, operating in an intellectual environment that is dictated by the, the by the practices and commitments of the research university. And those practices and commitments have to do with uh, uh, discovery, generation of new knowledge, of, with specialization, with, with expertise. Um, the PhD degree, the highest um, degree offered in, um, in various disciplines is a research degree is a degree in which that is granted on the basis of having made in the form of a doctoral dissertation, some original contribution to some important field, some original research contribution. Um, and that is the orientation of the university. Um, most of a faculty member's professional life involves on the one hand, solitary or sometimes collaborative research um, and publication and dissemination of the research in a cadre of other specialists and professionals that are scattered all over the world. Um, that is the, the the bulk of the professional experience of a of a faculty member. And then there is the teaching, and the bulk of that practice also involves uh, disseminating specialized research or at least preparing students to access. Um, to make sense of or contribute to that specialized research. And then there is liberal education in which a faculty member steps out of their disciplinary specialty and becomes a reader, becomes a uh, fellow examiner of the meaning of a human life grappling with fundamental questions. That is a, a fellow um, seeker after the truth, a fellow um, constructor of a life of freedom. That's what liberal education is about, right? Liberal education is about living 
the life of freedom. It is the kind of education that prepares one for the full development, the full flowering of a life of freedom. We as human beings find ourselves in this situation, this existential situation, where we are free to organize our lives according to some conception of what is good, according to some notion of what kind of life is most worth living. And it is a condition that is inescapable, it is a condition that is universal, and it is a condition that liberal education is organized to address. That is to equip a student to most productively think about and most productively organize a coherent vision of the world and a vision of their place in it. Now that task, that activity, sits very uncomfortably in the university. Um, and most curricula have simply sort of dodged that mission, that calling, that aspiration of liberal education, have simply um, sort of uh, walked away from any intentional effort to organize a program in which a program of education in which students perform do this practice of liberal education. Instead, what most schools have done is um, carve out the existing discipline-based, specialized-based offerings of their faculty and allow students to take introductory courses in those areas and call that a liberal education. Some universities like, like Columbia in its core curriculum um, and a number of others that take this other aspect of education seriously, that say, no, we are going to organize a curriculum that while it demands professors to step away from the main professional activity, from the kinds of activities that, as you said, are recognized in the field, gain you the prestige, gain you the job offers, gain you the status and the salary, um, even though it's gonna ask professors to step away from that pursuit, um, it will create a curricular lane in which these other fundamental questions are explored and in which students are given a context in which to unfold, in which to flower, in which to dig deep into themselves um, and examine their lives and examine their, uh, their world. That kind of education, liberal education, which as I said, is somewhat rare in higher education is the most transformative kind of education. And you can speak to people who have gone through those sorts of education. I speak obviously to Columbia alums all the time. I am a Columbia alum myself. And that portion of the education, which is just a portion, you know, I, I talk to Columbia alumni who went into science, who went into business, who went into law, who went into architecture, who went into, into things that have nothing to do with the kind of humanistic scholarly practice that we did in the classroom. And they say it was those courses that were the most formative. It was those courses that have meant the most to me. It was those courses that have delivered the highest value of my education. It is those conversations that shaped me into the person who I am because those courses are designed for that. Now, the reason why those types of courses and that type of education is rare in the university is not because of an educational imperative. It is not because the kind of education that is most valuable to a student is kept in view. It is precisely because undergraduate education in the university 
has taken a secondary, tertiary, or further than that role in the mission of the university. What drives the activity of the university in most places is not is no longer the cultivation of young people into full human beings, but rather the uh, shaping of young people into specialists of one kind or another, including academia. There is a false sort of a false view that if you train the students to be a a humanist scholar, to be you know whatever, a Dante scholar or a Milton scholar or a Shakespeare scholar, that therefore you're doing liberal education. No, when you're when you're training them to be a professional academic, you are doing non-liberal education just as much as if you were training them in engineering. And the cognitive dissonance may be even stronger when you think, <laughs> because you're reading Milton, uh, for the sake of proving your bona fides, um, yeah, right. That they're and of, yeah, and all kinds of distortions happen to the intellectual life of a humanist because of that professionalization. Um, it is it is one of the reasons why so much of the scholarship that is produced in the humanities today matters to no one except other people who are pursuing careers in the humanities. That there is a fundamental disconnect between so much of the scholarship produced in the humanities and the things that matter to humans. I'm curious, um, in the long arc of your teaching, if you've noticed any cultural trends or if there have been any inflection points where you feel like, okay, this is one era where students are learning in a certain way and now we're in a new era. Um, obviously, social media is is one area where you might find the, the relationship to text has been changed by just in terms of our sheer habits of attention and attentiveness and attention span. But also, like I was talking to a principal of a, a elite high school, and I asked a question about sort of what is the student body like? And they said, they're all stressed about getting into elite colleges like Columbia. Um, there's only so many spots. You're paying, I don't know, $40,000 a year or whatever to to go have a, a an advantage in the college admissions process. And yet, like... Your, your parents are telling you your world will end if, if you get into Vassar um, and don't get into Columbia or whatever. Um, and and so, you know, I was sort of taken aback by, and then I read Jonathan Haidt as well, and they're sort of forgetting even just the competitiveness of college admissions, a general trend towards rising anxiety and depression amongst the young. So how is like the mental health or spiritual health of the student body presenting itself in the classroom? Yeah. Maybe that's too leading of a question, but no. But it's 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 a it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating phenomenon. Um, so I have been teaching and teaching at Columbia since I was mm, 24, 23 or twenty four. First started as a graduate student, um, and I have taught every single semester with very few exceptions. There have been you know had a child, took a leave. Uh, one semester of research here and there, but I've essentially been teaching continuously um, since the since the late '90s, um, and have seen that evolution in the student body take place. But I have seen it very gradually. It's like when you look at the hour hand of the clock, you don't see it move, and then you know a few hours later you it's very clear that you've moved. So when you look at yourself in the mirror every day and um, you don't, you don't see so clearly 
that 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 aging or those changes and then one day you'll see a picture of yourself only five years ago or something it's like oh my god look what has happened to me um so the change has been gradual so it's it's hard to um uh to point to moments of disruption um or moments of discontinuity but there are certainly um various trends and and one thing i i want to say about this is that there is a tendency to look at at, at young people, college age people, the, the traditional college age, 18 to 22 or so. Um, and sort of through that, um, diagnose the entire society and sort of characterize that those generations as being the kind of the embodiment um, of some sensibility. And I think that that is, it's, it's overplayed. Um, what you see, what I see in my 18 to 22 year old students is what I see in the world. Um, that is, they have um, assimilated and absorbed the evolving ethic and the evolving values and the evolving norms um, of our culture. Um, and they, perhaps it is in, in kind of starker relief um, um, in that age group who are sort of literally putting together their adult lives, literally for the first time enacting a kind of autonomy, uh, a kind of um, uh, capacity to organize their own lives. So maybe it is it is more evident um, in young people like that. Some of the things you point out um, in your question are, are absolutely there. Uh, the fact that students today who end up at elite places like Columbia are sort of like elite athletes. It's like, you know, when you get a, a, a gymnast or something who's an Olympic gymnast who's, you know, 14 or 16 or something, but has been doing this since they were five, um, just training and in some ways organizing their whole life and their whole personality around this. Um, or when you see a ballet dancer, it's not quite as extreme, but there is an element in which you get students who are sort of professional students. Um, and with that comes a capacity for hard work, for sort of um, high level of performance. But with that also comes a kind of narrowness and a kind of, even a kind of fragility in the sense that um, the students are used to succeeding and to excelling. Um, and when they encounter, you know, a B as a grade, um, can be devastating. Can 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 feel like I I my whole life now has been ruined because I gotta be, which was not the case when I was a student. Say when I was as an undergraduate student, there were some courses that you decided you were gonna get a B on because they were not that interesting, and you were going to focus your energies on something else that really mattered to you, and you did enough to have a B, and a B was a respectable is a respectable grade. You passed without any question. You learned the material. You did fine. Um, that's no longer the case. Um, and that is driven by a kind of competitiveness in the, both the admissions process, but also in the professional world. Um, you also bring up, kind of brought up in the question social media, that has been also, it, it is inescapably evident, um, the ways in which the mediated experience of socializing and of studying and of um and of living living through living so much of one's life through the screen 
brings in a kind of psychic impoverishment, um, brings in a kind of isolation, a kind of, um, you know, it's like when you eat a lot of food that's not really nutritious, that it, it, it is a kind of famishing um, that you see in, and, and you see it not just in the students, you see it in yourself because I also expend much more of my life on a screen as I'm doing right now, for example. Um, and at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of the year, the cumulative effect of that is an impoverishment of my human experience. Um, so, you know, these are things there that are that are evident in, in teaching young people today. Along with that, I, I, I like to emphasize that what I meet in my classrooms constantly are students who are burning, who are hungry um, for a uh, encounter with reality, with truth, with the big questions of life, a kind of um, uh, a suspicion of the reigning values of the culture, the acquisitiveness, materialism, uh, show-offiness, all of the things that, 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 that people sometimes say that young people are uh, irrevocably lost to. There's in fact widespread sense among the young people I meet that the superficiality, artificiality, competitiveness, materialism, consumerism of the reigning culture is unsatisfying, that there is something wrong with that. Um, and they may not be able to articulate it. They may not be able to propose an, a, a coherent alternative, but there is that sense and that hunger, which is why courses like the ones we've been describing, education like the one we've been describing, um, students appreciate it, students tend to love it, students tend to find it meaningful. So the same sort of existential anxieties that I had as a young person and that a, a young person a hundred years and a thousand years ago had are very much there today. And it is up to us, the faculty, to um, speak to those and to engage students on that basis. 18 to 22 year olds are a malleable bunch. Um, you might say that, you know, 13 to 17 year olds are also quite malleable. Um, it, it does seem anecdotally and phenomenologically true that as we age, we harden our in our identities and habits and worldviews and we become less malleable. Um, at the same time, if we think of Socrates as somebody who embodied the lifelong pursuit of truth, he didn't think that he, you know, got a degree and that's the end of it. Um, how do we maintain the spaciousness in our life after college to work on self-formation? Um, and is there a danger in the framing of liberal education as synonymous with college that people think that they graduate and now they, they go into the world and that's it? There's no more reason to return to great books or to add to one's encyclopedia because one has now accomplished something and that's the end of it. Yeah. There's a passage in, in Plato's Republic in which Socrates says um, to his interlocutors, you know, education is really not what people think it is. Education is not about putting knowledge in the souls. Souls is the word he uses. We would probably say minds. It's not about putting knowledge in the minds of people who don't have it. Education is really 
about turning the soul, turning the mind in a particular direction, turning it towards truth. Um, and that is what, what a liberal education does. It, is in, it, is, it instills, it cultivates certain orientation to the world, certain habits of mind, certain dispositions that are both intellectual and characterological. Um, and the actual content that you end up teaching in these general education courses Take the great books model, we read Aristotle, we read Plato, we read Thucydides, we read Hobbes, we read Locke, Freud, Marx, Nietzsche. Unless students go into academia or into related academic areas, they're not going to remember any of that. They're not going to remember, you know, what is it that Nietzsche says about the ascetic ideal in essay three of the genealogy of morals? They, what is it? What's the analogy of the divided line in Plato's Republic? And it doesn't matter that they remember any of that stuff. That is not the point. Uh, the point is that going through the experience of grappling with those texts, those ideas, those, those situations, those perspectives, rearranges something in the way that the students constructs the world. It reorients them. And that reorientation is something that lasts forever. Um, now, clearly you can, do, you can do things that keep that, 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 uh, that response to that, that keep that um, orientation uh, alive, that, that feed it, that expand it, um, or you can neglect it. I'm not saying that having had a liberal education like this means you're going to forever continue pursuing it. But if it's successful, it is going to reorient you in a way that is going to allow you to do your engineering job or your finance job or your scholarly job in a different way. Um, I think it will, it will create a certain kind of longing and hunger for intellectual stimulation um, that will be persistent. It may, I think in the best of cases, um, turn you on to a kind of deeper inner investigation. That is, it may, I think in the best of cases when it's successful, orient you inward. Um, and again, by that, I don't mean making you more egotistical or more self-absorbed, um, but making you introspective, making you contemplative, um, making, deepening the life of the mind. Um, I worry quite a bit about the ways in which contemporary ways of living and contemporary ways of, inter of interacting have um, caught us off from the experience of silence the experience of boredom, um, from the experience of not doing anything. You know, it used to be that if you were at a doctor's office waiting for to be called, you would just sit there and, you know, maybe there'll be some magazines on the table you would look at or um, now no longer. Now you're there and you're working, um, whether you're doing email, you're interacting or you're doing something, you, your phone. Um, Social media has made it such that, and one of the powerful things about the, the medium is that, you know, take Twitter or Instagram or something. If you have five seconds, if that's what you have, because you're waiting for the elevators, it's, which is on the 10th floor, and you're waiting for it on the second floor, you got five seconds, you can take out your phone and put those five seconds to use, to use in some way, right? It's like every nook and cranny of our attention has been colonized or has their, their ways of colonizing it. So one thing that I hope the kind of ruminative, slow exploration that happens in the classroom is that it attunes students 
attunes the person who experiences it to the power and the value, the vitality that there is in slowing down, the vitality, energy, power that there is in in silence, um, in letting your attention and letting your mind wonder without predetermined direction or stimuli. Another trend that I see, and I, I think it's related to social media and mediation, is politicization. So it seems like universities have always been places where people care about implementing ideas and pursuing justice. It's a unique hinge in a person's life where they're sort of free from their um, home of origin and so can act out <laughs> their relationship to authority <laughs> um, and simulate their, you know, what do you call it? Rage against the machine. But uh, um, from, from my armchair point of view, um, I'm now, I graduated college in 2010. I went to Brown. Um, I feel like something has changed in the way that people express their political dissent. So there's always been sort of, you know, students who walk around with bumper stickers and set up tents uh, on the college lawn advocating for, you know, raising consciousness about whatever cause. But it feels like there was still that space uh, back in the day for rumination within the classroom. And now my sense is that the classroom itself has become far more politically charged. You can't say something without worrying about offending someone. Um, there could be real ramifications to that. And just a sense that like nothing is neutral. There's no there's no freedom to pursue ideas and see where they lead um, because you have an identity that's predetermined and a tribalism or a loyalty that's predetermined. And if these books challenge that, then rather than introspect, to use your word, the presumption is that they're doing some kind of violence or infraction to you. Yeah, yeah. I recognize what you describe. Um, and I think it is a symptom of a broader politicization in our of culture. Um, we are at a at a moment of extreme discursive intolerance um, um, uh, across across sort of the ideological spectrum, right? You have. Um, College campuses are known for the for their liberal politics, for um, what is you know, derisively described as woke consciousness, and the kind of intolerance that comes with that, the kind of uh, orthodoxy and sometimes quite brutal enforcement of the orthodoxy. Um, but you have uh, on the other side of the political spectrum also um, extremely dangerous intolerance. In, in, intolerant practices, um, sort of censoring, canceling um, people who violate the other orthodoxy, a kind of a kind of more conservative orthodoxy. Um, it seems to me that that the college is one of the institutions that is positioned to fight back that is positioned to resist this. Um, and it is one, I think of the central arenas, the central battle, battlegrounds of 
culture, sort of the, the battles that determine whether our culture becomes more closed or more open. Um, I see it in my colleagues, in my students, the fact that the sort of range of debate has narrowed. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, is it, in, is it in the past 10 years? Maybe it's longer, it seems to have accelerated in uh, sort of the, the post-Obama era. Um, and uh, I see colleagues sort of self-censoring. I see colleagues not teaching certain classes anymore, not teaching certain books anymore, not opening certain, certain kinds of questions anymore. I see it among the students, a certain sort of reluctance, terror, of assuming a minority opinion in the classroom, that is holding a view or defending a view in the classroom that is uh, unpopular, that is not, not widely held. Part of the way that I try to respond to this is by creating, doing everything I can to create a space in the classroom where that is isolated, that is, that is shielded from those cultural pressures. You can't do it all the way. But for example, I um, have begun to think of myself as a teacher, as a protector of minority opinion in the classroom. That is, in the way that I teach, I create space and sort of protect um, dissent. Um, that means that I need to be very careful about what ideological commitments of my own I betray. Um, that is, if I make it clear that from my position of authority, there are certain ideas or certain ideological positions that I hold and that I think are the right ones, uh, that immediately has a chilling effect on any student who might may, who may have a contrary opinion. So I have to both maintain a kind of neutrality, um, but also a um this position to encourage the real debates to encourage the position the, the the views that are unpopular to encourage the views that are um that are that are that I may not even hold and that I may even find offensive to encourage and create an environment in which those views can emerge it's hard and part of what's required to do that is to Cultivate in the classroom a community of affection and trust. That is, you can, if you can create, to use the phrase that you used before, which I've used too, the sympathetic bond, sympathetic bond among the students um, and the teacher. Um, then to the extent that you create that sympathetic bond among the students and the teacher, you expand to that same extent, you expand the range of uh, what is acceptable to say and think and debate in the classroom. Um, so that is a, that, that's a hard job. But as I said, it seems to me that we in the university are at a, at a absolutely critical juncture in upholding the values of free discourse and free inquiry. Um, that it is one of the one of the central practices contributions that we need to make that we can make, that we are positioned to make. Um, I can say that we're doing a great job at it, um, but I also know that 
some very important work in those areas is happening that it isn't all it isn't monolithic that that while there is a general climate of intolerance there are very important counter uh, trends and very important um, challenges to that within the university to that sort of rise in intolerance and, and, and ideological witch hunting that we have uh, that we have been experiencing. Mm. Discourse has a unique flavor to it because it can it can go in so many different directions. You can you can use discourse to collaborate and you can use discourse to engage in a kind of battle. And sometimes those two go hand in hand. Um, in the Jewish tradition, debate, um, antagonism between competing worldviews or competing principles is collaborative uh, in, in, in the best case scenario because it sharpens your own understanding of what your principles are, where your blind spots are, you arrive at a higher truth. Um, but in terms of this trust, I think that's, there's a point at which trust can break down because things get so heated and you often see that as well in, let's say, rabbinic texts where rabbis are engaging in the pursuit of truth collaboratively through debate. But if somebody wins the debate and somebody loses the debate, the person dies of shame who loses the debate. Um, and so, and and I think in Jewish language, we might say that truth is not the only value. There's the competing value of, of what's called peace. Um, and so Moses stands for truth. He's the prophet. Aaron, his brother, the priest, stands for peace. If we just have Moses, we get a person who smashes the tablets and strikes an Egyptian taskmaster and curses the people. And if we just have Aaron, we have a people pleaser who, um, in his worst case scenario, engages in idolatry simply because that's what uh, I like to say, that's what sells tickets. Um <laughs> And so we see that dialectic play out throughout Jewish history um, in the tractate uh, called Sota, which is about the frayed relationship between husband and wife. Um, to repair that relationship, God allows his name to be dissolved, and which is a kind of sacrilege. You, can't, you are not allowed to destroy the name of God. It's a violence to God. But in a ritual context, the way to heal this broken relationship is to dissolve the name of God. And it's a way, of, I think, of saying sometimes truth is not what matters. Uh, it doesn't matter who's right in that particular marital conflict. Um, what matters is the the peace between the husband and the wife. So I think of that in a classroom context as well, where sometimes the desire for truth can lead to a certain impatience or a certain um, inconsiderateness for other people's feelings, but obviously a keeping of the peace without any quest for truth leads to its own problems. And it's very difficult to get that balance right. I've, I've been in classrooms, I guess, as a truth seeker, um, where I've been deeply frustrated by the low level of discourse. Um, but I also feel like a jerk, you know, see, sitting there in a seminar, seething that nobody's saying anything and I'm not learning. Yeah, yeah. I certainly had have had that experience as well, especially in graduate seminars. Um, where, you know, posturing, um, empty displays of erudition are so, so much of the coin of the, of the conversation. Um, your, your sort of description 
makes me think of this to the intellectual virtue of humility um and gandhi who i admire a lot and and have read a lot of used to two of his sort of uh pillars of ethical pillars in in the way that he tried to conduct his life and the the and teach um were truth and not violence and and he w- thought that they were different sides of the same coin like he felt that the quest for truth required nonviolence um that nonviolence was an, an expression a manifestation of truth um and uh the kind of you know what you're describing the the sort of moses archetype in the classroom um requires or demands a certainty demands absolute certainty um and to me education is fatal to absolute certainty true education is fatal to absolute certainty you can only condemn and you can only dismiss um and you can only despise from a position of self certainty um and there's a lot of that there's a lot of that in our world um how do we make space for the other thing how do we make space for the kind of intellectual humility um the kind of nonviolence in discourse um the the absolute commitment to the search of truth and at the same time um a a intellectual disposition that knows that you're not there um that knows the truth is way stranger than you imagine um how do we cultivate that um i as a teacher you know i think about it in that context a lot and as a teacher the most important thing i can do is to cultivate that within me and model it in the classroom um a big part of the of the education that happens in a liberal arts classroom is as as you alluded to earlier on in the conversation happens through modeling happens through students interacting with you looking to you for a um enactment of the intellectual virtues that that you believe in intellectual virtues that you um uphold intellectual virtues that you um preach as it were um the life of the mind so i think as a teacher of the liberal arts and this this gets back also to a thread in the conversation as a teacher of the liberal arts you can't just say the words you have to live the life um you can't be an effective teacher of liberal art, of liberal education without having your own life committed to that life of examination and to that certain way of um certain way of being and what we do in the classroom through engagement with the big questions is enact live spontaneously authentically with the students enact to the best of your capacity which is you know always limited and always leaves you unsatisfied uh, but to the best of your capacity to enact that kind of life along with your students when i was 17 i went on a trip to Israel for 5 weeks called the Bromfen Youth Fellowship. It was one of the first times in my life where I experienced a sustained love of learning as opposed to, you know, 
reading something to demonstrate comprehension or pass the test or whatever. And um, it had a huge impact on me. I would say it's the reason why I'm a rabbi. It's the reason why I've devoted my life to the pursuit of learning and sharing that love with others because it was modeled for me by my teachers. And um, I tasted of the sweet nectar and I, I know what that's like. And I want other people to have that experience. Um, when I came back from this immersive five-week trip of learning every day with peers who were curious and also loved learning, it was a bit of a shell shock um, going back um, to my hometown. And it's not like I came from such a parochial place. I grew up in Montclair, which is a relatively sophisticated suburb. Um, the top 10% of kids in my high school you know, all went to really good schools. But I still felt that I had just had an experience that was difficult to share. And um, I think anyone who's gone through a life-changing experience feels that way. It's not, it's not just love of learning, but sort of how do you share the, these individuating moments with others and maintain connectivity. And as I've gotten older, in some ways I felt increasingly lonely by virtue of my individuation. And in other ways I feel increasingly connected by virtue of that solitude. It's a quite a paradox. Um, my question for you, because you have quite the background and quite the life story as, a, as an immigrant from the Dominican Republic and somebody who grew up in um, a disadvantaged community. Um, your brother, you mentioned in the book, was a janitor. You're, you were spent a lot of your adolescence in a home that was not your mother's or your father's. How ha has the experience of reading these texts and teaching these texts allowed you to feel connected to all of all people, regardless of their literary or philosophical background, or has it created pain and friction, or perhaps both, um, because you now have tasted of something that you can't share with people that you feel close to? There were many ways in which the kind of education I got, and um, as you know, but it hasn't come up in conversation, and here is my night. No, I, I went to Columbia for college and experienced this great book, pro, great books program, the core curriculum that I then then um, directed for many years, and, I, and in which I continue to teach. Um, one of the things that encountering those ideas um, did for me coming to Colombia. So coming to Colombia when I was 18, um, you know, I'd come, I'd come to the, the US, um, what, six years earlier, not speaking English. So I had to learn English and sort of get up to speed to have enough, you know, enough proficiency to, to get into Colombia um, and, and, and function there here. Um, I was poor, we were poor. We grew up in public assistance um, and uh, just a, a life of material marginality, deprivation. Um, and um, coming to Colombia from that background was, was like landing in Mars um, culturally uh, in a in a in a class sense, um, I was a, a complete misfit, and the world that I was experiencing didn't make any sense to me. Um, people dressed, talked, 
behave, lived in a way that I could not have imagined that I that was initially undecipherable, um, illegible to me. One of the few places of leveling the playing field, uh, uh, plain leveling places, equalization, was the classroom and reading these texts. Um, suddenly we were having conversations in which I had the same kind of authority and the same kind of footing as my peers who had lived lives of much greater privilege and much greater uh, access to resources than I did, of, of, of in some sense, much greater uh, cultural richness than I did. I mean, cultural rich, cultural richness is always a context specific, the kind of cultural richness that, that was the um, currency of the, the Columbia life as an undergraduate. Uh, the core classroom was one of the places in which a certain kind of equality asserted itself. Um, here was a playing field in which I was very clearly my peers equal um, and on which we could connect, on which we could see eye to eye, on which we could form a kind of closeness, a kind of intimacy, a kind of fellowship um, that was inaccessible to us by virtue of our different experiences. Um, there is, as you as you bring up a, an underside to that, which is that even as I gained access to this world, even as I, as I gained access to this vista, this panorama, um, this sort of intellectual and cultural richness, um, it alienated me from, or cut me off or, 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 distanced me from certain aspects of my native culture, certain aspects of my native backgrounds, like cer certain aspects of my own community. Um, you know, by the time I finished my first year of college, I was no longer of the same spiritual community that I was, the church that I, that I was part of when I entered Columbia. By the time I was done with the first year, I couldn't no longer participate in the rituals, in the community life, in the beliefs, in the commitments, in the aspirations, something else had happened to me that, that, that caught me off from a kind of spiritual communion with that community. And that happened with certain parts of my family, um, that happened with some, certain parts of my friends. Um, there is a kind of cost to growth. There is a kind of cost, uh, cost to expansion um, of your life, of your perspective, of your um, spiritual development. Um, I think that one of the consolations is that that expansion, that growth of your spiritual life, of your, of your mental universe, also comes equipped with the tools to make sense of that, with the tools to be at peace with that, um, and with the tools to make that distancing not be adversarial or be irrevocable. I maintain a different kind of link to that community, a different kind of relationship to that earlier spiritual home. Um, there is no animal animosity, there is no contempt, there is no uh, looking down on. There is uh, a kind of higher frequency 
harmony, uh, acceptance of that. So with the growth, I think do come a set of tools that allow you to deal with the loss in a way that when you don't have that growth, um, you you don't have an equivalent set of tools that allow you to relate um, and uh, sort of partake of the world that you're missing. Are there any virtues that you find in the religious community in which you were raised um, that are missing amongst the more studied um, academically? And and you mentioned the cost of growth, but I'm also wondering if included in that cost beyond the social cost is also a certain loss of virtue. Uh, obviously, there are intellectual virtues um, and, and virtues that come with freedom, but are there any virtues that we have to give up that might correlate to a certain piety or a certain certainty or enthusiasm? Yeah. I mean, there is that, that question is such a temptation to sort of idealize features of the community, sort of the religious, small religious community that, that I was part of before I came to college. Um, and, you know, my, that temptation is to say, you know, there's a, there's a humility, um, there's a sort of uninterested, unself-interested devotion to the community, uh, willingness to accept sacrifice, a willingness to put the interest of others ahead of your own. Um, but I recognize that it's, it's more complicated than that. Those, those are features of that community that are admirable and that I don't see as prevalent in this larger sort of academic, intellectual, political, elite culture that I move in now. Um, there is much more of a sense in, in, in my professional intellectual life that sort of people are, are in it for themselves that you are looking out for your own self-interest um, and, and that that search is not embedded in a larger value, in a larger vision of a community. Um, and that, that was not the case at all in that, 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 that sort of small spiritual community, which there was a sense that we were, we were in it together. We were um, in some sense in pursuit of some communal good, um, some collective, manifestation of prosperity, um, of the, the, the common good. Um, so, you know, there, there are things like that, but I'm, I, I am, I am reluctant to paint in, in the broad, the broad strokes. Um, I do, one thing I can say unequivocally is that, um, I feel my life enriched and deepened um, by that experience, by having traversed the direct the, the territory, the trajectory I have, having grown up in the conditions of material deprivation that I grew up with, you know, having grew up first part of my life in a rural town, then being part of an immigrant community, a, a, a poor, um, in some ways, politically marginalized economically marginalized, disempowered community that um, 
having that be part of who I am, of my own formation, um, at some point transformed itself from the kind of deep disadvantage that it obviously is to a source of um, perspective, a power of penetration, of richness. I feel myself a bigger person, a better person, um, a more capable person for having that be part of me. Um, again, there, there, is, there is at some point in which all of those disadvantages and adversities become strengths, become um, nutrients for your development. And, and you know how that happens and at what point that happens, I don't know, it's probably gradual, but I certainly feel in some way blessed, in some way privileged to have had the kind of background, the kind of disadvantaged background that I have. Introspection is something that I think we both value and we're both drawn to, um, maybe perhaps naturally. Um, <laughs> one can speculate about all the all the drivers of introspection, nature versus nurture. But um, I know that some people who meditate go into an anxious panic state. They can't handle looking at their thoughts. They don't like their thoughts. They don't like the, the void that it raises for them. In the same way that some people have a phobia of outer space, there's a kind of phobia of the inner space. And you mentioned that you feel blessed. I think for myself, part of why introspection is comfortable for me is that I'm comfortable with what is there when I introspect on some basic level, even if there's anxiety, even if there's fear. Fundamentally, and maybe this is my religiosity, I feel blessed. I feel there is some love principle in the world or in my life that I can connect to. But I know that for some people, introspection can lead to a kind of neurosis. Um, and when you think of Hamlet's to be or not to be, there's a way in which that archetypally captures a certain critical self-reflexive mind that is unable to turn off from it and almost like overdoses on this critical thinking. Um, or I think of um, Saul Bellow's caricature of Alan Bloom and Ravelstein as someone who in an almost like drives himself to toxicity by just surrounding himself with books. So is there a dark side to introspection or what can we do to prevent or guard ourselves from the sort of introspection on steroids that leads to the anxiety and suicidal ideation and all that other stuff? Yeah. I've been trying to formulate for myself in a way that I can articulate this difference between a sort of neurotic self-absorption, neurotic self-obsession that leads to anxiety and, and mystery, really, um, neuroses, um, and the kind of exam inner examination that, you know, Socrates, Socrates proposed and that the great meditative traditions encourage. Um, been uh, trying to formulate, you know, what what is the difference? Because they sort of look, they sound alike. They both sound like you are um, examining inward, looking into yourself. Uh, but there is there is they're really fundamentally different sorts of activity. Um, and I've been looking for a way to articulate that difference. Um, and I'm st I still am. Um, 
there is a Zen teaching that I come back to by Dogen, the 13th century Japanese Zen master, where he says to study the self, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. Um, that the kind of introspection that um, I try to practice the, is not a self-obsessed. It is a kind of introspection that sort of dissolves rather than solidify the self. Um, that the self becomes more transparent, the ego becomes, the grip that the ego has on your identity becomes loosened. That you begin to see yourself and others, yourself and the world around you as, as, as in a continuum. You lose the sense of, or you loosen the sense of separation, the sense of individuality, the sense of isolation. Um, you begin to see yourself as organically interconnected with others, um, with your environment, with your um, physical uh, surroundings. Um, so there is a difference between the neurotic absorption with the self and the kind of introspection that loosens that identification with the self. Um, and one of those is destructive and, and generates suffering, generates anxiety, generates misery. And the other one generates a kind of liberation, a kind of serenity, a kind of uh, even killness. Um, and again, I, I, I don't, I, I'm searching for the ways to, to draw, to more clearly articulate what those two meanings of self, of introspection, of self-exploration mean. Um, but it's certainly two very, very, very different kinds of, of inner, of inner attention, of attention to the self. Mm. In the Torah, it says, Vizot, um, Torah asher sam Moshe. Um, and this is the Torah that Moses, um, placed before the people. And that word, um, sam, the, there's a midrash, a commentary that does a wordplay on it and says, this is the drug that got, that Moses placed before the people, referring to the, the Torah. And then it does the pharmacon thing that Plato does. And it says, you know, there's, why does it say, and this is the Torah? Because there's another Torah. This Torah is a, is a drug for good. The other Torah is a drug for bad. Um, the same thing, the same Torah can become a remedy or a toxin depending on how you relate to it, depending on what you expect from it. So I think of that when you make this distinction between the introspection that loosens the self and the introspection that um, asphyxes it. <laughs> um, maybe it's not two different things. Maybe it's two modes in a way, like the strength and weakness come together. Two, two modes, the, sh the light and the shadow, um, right. or the remedy and the toxin that, that in some sense are interconnected yeah yeah it seems that examination of the self 
rather than simply satisfaction of the self. That is when your driving aim is to satisfy the self, to fulfill the self. Um, You know, the self, someone said that the self attracts suffering to itself like a magnet attracts metal filings. Um, and the, so the, the effort to satisfy the self, to fulfill the self seems to be sort of self-defeating. Um, the effort to see and examine, regard, be with, um, that's a kind, you know, that's, that's a different, a different kind of practice, um, Maybe that's the, you know, the light and the shadow side where the object is to see clearly um, rather than a kind of instrumental exploration aimed at self-fulfilling. Yeah. Which is a pairing that we might map onto the sacred and the profane as well. Um, or the spirit and the body, or you know, not to be too dualistic, but um, obviously, right? Every every life environment is going to have its compromises between the things that matter deeply to us and the things that we have to do in order to sustain those those purer things. Uh, Daniel Eviskin, this is one of my go to metaphors. Um, his vision for the New World Trade Tower building: only four percent of it was realized because of budgetary and zoning and various other constraints. And presumably, I don't know the field so well, that's that's a success for a project of that scope. 4% means it's a Liebeskind building. Um, <laughs> and so um, how do you maintain your sort of purity or your authenticity or your sense of the dissolved self, the relaxed self, um, the open and humble self in your professional context, in your life world, where there are all other things pulling at you, um, obligations to publish, obligations to file reports, you know, wh- whatever it is to make a living. Um, how do you how do you maintain the sense of transmission with all the other e- pulls toward the ego? I have I have two small children, a, a five year old and a one and a half year old, and um, my life often feels chaotic, often feels um, besieged. Um, so it takes intentional, deliberate effort to cultivate, to sort of remain connected to what in my view are the things that matter most, the, the, the kind of living the kind of life that most um, fully enacts, most fully fulfills um, what feels like most authentic about me or the, the highest aspirations of me, for me. Um, I, I find that there has been, in some sense, a professional cost. I, I, you know, have not pursued a standard um, sort of beaten path academic career. Um, there have been 
opportunities or or aspects of my professional life that I have not not fulfilled, not 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 pursued, not cashed in on, um, because it hasn't felt consistent with a kind of more genuine pull towards uh, an authentic kind of life. Um, there are things that I do in my own sort of personal life, uh, a meditation practice that I that I keep and sustain and have for you know many many years, um, a daily meditation practice, um, uh, and that is not in the context of a you know religion. I'm not a I'm not a conventional religious person. Um, but it has seemed in my own life, and I, I don't I don't often talk about this because I don't I don't everyone has to find their own way, but in my own life, having every day that period of silence, of contemplation, of trying to be fully there in the moment without distraction, observing what's happening in my mind, observing what's happening in my body, taking in what's happening in my surroundings, that has felt like a kind of anchor, a kind of um, tether to some deeper part of me, some sort of reality that can that I can lose sight of in the running around chaotic unfolding of my day. It's like once again, in my own life right now, once once the kids wake up at 6 a.m., it's like off to the races, then I'm not in control anymore. Things, I'm, 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 I am surfing the waves that come at me as best I can. Um, so I feel like before, every day, before I enter into the fray, I, I make it a point of, of, of being still for a period. Um, so that in my own life has, uh, has been and is um, indispensable. Um, it is one of the ways in which I remain, remain rooted, remain grounded. Um, and I think that that has, you know, has implications to the way I do my work. It has implications to the way that I behave myself in the institutional and professional settings that I am in, including sometimes um, robbing me of a certain kind of ambition uh, or, or discouraging um, or starving a certain kind of um, professional ambition and accomplishment. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. One final question. What has being a parent done for the way that you relate to teaching and what have you learned from your reading that has prepared you for parenting? Wow. Um, two big things. You asked for one, but I'll tell you two big things. One is sort of heightened my my sense of humility, my sense of uh, people are living their own lives, um, and the contribution I make is um, modest um, to my students, to my children. Uh, my job as a parent, you know, I've, I've come to understand as enabling my children to be who they are, to be independent of me, um, and 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 that has that has illuminated or highlighted an aspect of teaching that I'm, I'm now more conscious of. I'm now more aware that, um, that my students um, are sort of their own 
persons and that I am there to enable them, to equip them to do their own thing, which I don't understand or control or determine. Um, the other thing that, that has become, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have children, but but for me, child, having children was understanding something about love that I didn't understand or grasp before. Um, something about like unconditional love, something about like I love them not because of what they've done or who they are or anything. There, it, it is completely beyond any transactional relationship. Um, and in a way, their dependence on me, the fact that they make my day crazy, the fact that I um, give so much to them uh, and they just take it for granted, um, they don't, you know, they don't say thank you or something that, um, that sort of, and that will change obviously as they grow, but, but as they're infants, it's, it's totally one way I serve them. And that service, that sacrifice, that devotion to them generates this extraordinary love that it, and it is not, it is not transactional at all. So that, that, that it is how much they demand of me that fuels my love for them, not how much they give me. Is how much they take from me that makes them love me, that makes me love them. Um, so that's been that's been quite quite um, vividly in a kind of experiential way uh, brought home to me by having children. Now, there was a second part to your question. What um, has reading done to prepare you? Yeah, um, I had children uh, late in my life. My first child. Uh, I had when I was 45. Um, so I've had, had a lot of reading and a lot of my education. Um, and, you know, it, it's my, my own aging process and maturation has been so embedded in a kind of intellectual development. I don't know how much of it comes from my formal education and my practice of teaching and thinking and writing, how much of it is just the natural process of maturation. Um, but I feel, um, that I have a sort of wide angle lens through which to understand everything that's happening, a sort of context. It's like, I am both in it, in the moment of the situation, but there's a part of me that's like up in a, looking at it from 10,000 feet. Um, and that part that is looking at the situation from 10,000 feet has been really shaped by my education has really been shaped by the intellectual experiences um, and intellectual in the broad sense. I think, you know, sort of personal heart kind of experiences I include there. Um, and then, you know, there are, there are obviously lots of things about psychology and education and learning and cognitive science that, that inform the way I parent. But I think in the, in a more fundamental sense, it's that I have, um, as a result of my education, a certain point of view, a certain reference point that contextualizes everything that happens on the ground and which I find quite, um, uh, you know, priceless, just, just extraordinarily valuable in my experience of parenting. Hmm. I've got three, so I can relate to the <laughs> chaos. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Zohar. It's been a pleasure. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. 
It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAdkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.